Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, well, what a week it's been. I was away last week, so there was no podcast, which perhaps was just as well, because I might have had some not-so-kind things to say about the uh, so-called mini-maxi budget that uh, the UK Chancellor produced last week. I did uh, keep track of what was happening from my holiday abroad, and, uh, well, it was not a particularly impressive achievement, as we saw. Whether or not you believe in the policies that they were talking about were right, the manner in which it was announced certainly left something to be desired. A lot of unfunded tax cuts, or at least tax cuts, and public spending that wasn't clearly costed or indeed explained how they would be funded. That, I think, was the issue that the markets had with the budget. And uh, we saw a quite dramatic move in gilt yields uh, as a result of that, and also as a result of the fact that the Bank of England had, the day before, only increased interest rates by half a percent. I say only, that's still quite a big move in the current market we've had for the last 10 years, but uh, less than some investors were expecting, and certainly in contrast to the sharper rises in interest rates that have been seen from the Federal Reserve and from the European Central Bank. So all in all, it had a poor reception, the UK mini budget or maxi budget, depending on your point of view. And that's continued this week where we've seen uh, the stock market fall quite sharply, uh, at least until Friday, which is when I'm recording this section of the podcast. And we've also seen gilt yields continuing to edge up to uh, north of 4%, uh, despite the Bank of England's intervention earlier in the week. So in that context, it's perhaps not a surprise that uh, it's been another relatively poor week for the investment trust sector. As I say, I'm recording this uh, shortly after lunch on Friday. And uh, certainly the first four days of this week, the investment company index was down every day, including a very sharp fall on Thursday. And as a result of that, the average discount now across that investment trust index has widened out to 16.5%. That was the figure at the start of today. Uh, And that compares with a discount of 9.8%. At the end of June, we thought that was quite wide by recent historical standards for the investment trust sector. We haven't seen that sort of level uh, for quite a while, apart from that pandemic sell-off in 2020. And compares also with 4.7% discount on 31st of March, end of the first quarter, and 1.6% at the start of the year. So a very dramatic de-rating of the investment trust uh, sector as a whole. This is what happens when you move into severe down markets. The implicit gearing in investment trust kicks in and also the fact that share prices can move independently of asset values uh, helps to produce further weakness as well. So far this year, therefore, as a result, uh, as of this morning, the uh, investment trust index was down fully 21.3% and that compares to an 8% decline in the FTSE All Share Index but a similar kind of fall in the uh, S&P 500 and uh, uh, the World Index. And that in turn reflects the fact that uh, the average investment trust in the market uh, indices does include a lot of overseas investment funds. And they're likely to move more in line with the world market than with the UK market. But actually more notable than any of those things was the fact that the alternative asset sector which has been so strong for so many years and has become very popular, that's seen a very sharp sell-off in several sectors, including general infrastructure, renewable energy and property investment trusts, all of which have moved sharply lower this week and indeed lower over the past month. In particular, many of these trusts are down by 20% or so as discounts have widened and NAVs have declined. This week, the primary driver being that rise in gilt yields that I mentioned, which has a disproportionate effect on the discount rates that uh, many of these alternative asset trusts use in order to value their investments. So with that in mind, uh, I have actually recruited three guests to come on the podcast this week to cover all these interesting issues. The first of these is James Carthew, who is a director of Quoted Data, the Investment Trust Research website. And James is a former fund manager who's been 
investing in investment trusts for many, many years, not quite as long as me, but uh, quite a long time. Uh, he'll be talking about the market generally and about some of the trusts that reported this week. Next, I will be talking to Colette Ord, who uh, regular listeners may remember from uh, a couple of months ago. She was on the uh, podcast and uh, she is the infrastructure and renewable energy analyst at Numis. And uh, to round it out, I've also spoken to one of her colleagues, Justin Bell, who is the property specialist at Numis. The property sector has been in the eye of the storm this past week. So plenty to talk about. And uh, I would remind you also that if you are interested in tracking all the news announcements this week, you will find them on the Moneymakers website uh, behind the Moneymakers Circle paywall, uh, I have to say, uh, along with our normal regular features, in-depth fund profiles and commentary about what's been happening. So to talk over some of the quite dramatic movements we've seen in the investment trust sector this week, and indeed over the last fortnight, I turn to James Carthew, who, as I said earlier, is a director of Quoted Data, the research website, specialist investment trust research website, and a former fund manager who's been following the investment trust sector for many years. So James, welcome. Let's kick off then by talking about what's been happening this particular week. Obviously, we've had the fallout from the uh, Chancellor's rather uh, unfortunate budget. I, I, I could use a stronger adjective, I think, there. And uh, we've also seen a continued response to the uh, rising bond yields, both here and in the States and elsewhere, which have had a particularly marked impact on uh, certain sectors. So um, why don't you kick off? Just tell us uh, what you've been making of developments in the last uh, couple of weeks, James. It definitely has been quite a sort of violent week for markets. We've seen some very big share price moves mostly downwards, as you've alluded to. I suppose the actions of the Chancellor last week really unnerved markets. That What we've seen is very big moves in the long bond yield. So government borrowing over 20 years, the shot up went through 5% yield at one point, and has come back since the Bank of England intervened. It's now close to sort of 4.5, 4.4. But... Um, that has a big impact, obviously, if you're borrowing money and um, it's on a floating rate of interest, you haven't actually fixed your interest, as many mortgage owners are about to find out. But also, that applies to quite a lot of companies too. So there are some that are slightly looking a bit strained on their borrowing. And the other thing it does is if you've got a NEV, which is valued on a discounted cash flow basis, where you, you've got a stream of cash flows into the future and then... You divide those by a, um, a discount rate to get the net present value. Those discount rates look like they may go up, and that's been pushing down the values of, of anything on value on a DCF basis, which is most of the alternative assets funds, really. So renewable energy, infrastructure. It sort of applies to property, too, where you know they think the yield's going to have to go up there. So property companies have been amongst the worst performing things. That's been quite savage. Some of the moves have indeed been quite savage, as you say. I mean, I'm just looking over the past five days. We're recording this on Friday afternoon, uh, and they have improved a little bit uh, this morning, I think. But uh, looking back over the last five days or the last week, yes, we've seen movements of 13, 14, 16, 18, 19 percent in the property sector, many of the property sector uh, trusts. And that is pretty dramatic. So it can't all be down to just one week's movement in uh, discount rates. It's not as if this uh, whole process has not been visible it has been coming for a while. We know that bond yields have been rising and so on. We perhaps didn't know the scale of it. So do you think that uh, some of the uh, shareholders in some of these property trusts in particular, they've been a little complacent maybe? They haven't quite woken up to the risks that are out there? I mean, I suppose the other thing that they might have done is accelerated the oncoming recession. We're definitely going to be quite constrained in the amount that we can all spend if mortgage rates go up. And that's going to have a problem, a knock-on effect on a whole raft of companies. And, you know, there is a worry, I suppose, that people won't be able to pay their rent like on a commercial basis. Um, you might see more voids and things being relapsed and on higher rents. So no, there's a real worry there, I think, just about the healthy economy anyway, that this is just exacerbated. So, we've, I mean, it's been a pretty difficult year all year for the investment trust sector, as we know. I mean, I look back at the figures at the start of January and the average discount in the sector was at 1.6%. Uh, and this week, it's broadened all the way out to about 16%, which has taken it back to a level that, apart from the pandemic, we haven't seen for a good number of years. 
So how do you think that the sector is going to react to this? I mean, we've seen a lot of retail investors come into the investment trust sector in recent years, encouraged by the performance record and by the range of options that the investment trust sector provides. But uh, is there a worry that those who've come into the sector recently and aren't used to these uh, dramatic discount moves might be uh, put off and will become kind of institutionalized sellers, almost, one could say? I hope not. I mean, uh, the worst of all possible worlds is to be the sort of investor that panics out the bottom and then buys in only when things are looking rosy. You really want to be taking a contrarian view. Um, and I think markets are already looking through some of this. We are seeing the worst, if you like, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be panicking out at this point. In terms of, of fundraising for the sector, that's obviously that's been a big driver recently that we've seen a lot of money coming towards alternative assets from new energy and that sort of thing. That's going to be much harder going forward. We have seen one new fundraise announced this week from a battery storage fund, Harmony Energy Income, and there is a, a question mark about how that's going to happen, but they're doing it on... Um, I went means what they call a C-share. So to explain to people how it works, basically you, you create a whole new class of securities and call them C-shares. And the money that is raised gets invested into a separate pool of assets backed by those C-shares. And they don't get merged into the ordinary shares until everything's fully invested and everything's up and running. So it is technically possible to raise money while the ordinary shares are still trading at discount. But you have to do a question whether people want to do that if they can buy the ordinary shares on a discount anyway. So that, that puts a question mark over that. We've got a few IPOs on the go at the moment. People came back after the holidays in the beginning of September, keen to get on because of the brokers have been starved of IPO revenue for a while now. So we saw three trying to come to the market as a Chinese private equity fund called Welkin. They've just said, look, we're realistically, we're not going to be able to get this thing done by the end of September, by which is our deadline. So we're going to extend it to the end of October. There's um, another one called Independent Living REIT, which was going to be a competitor to things like Civitas and Triple Point. They've seen big drops in their share prices recently, and it just said, this is too hard, we can't do it. So they, they changed their minds this morning and said, we're not going to proceed for the moment. And then the other one, which is Sustainable Farmland, they've still got a week to go on their IPO. We have to wait and see whether they can get that done or not. I mean, there is no real reason, given the sort of asset they're investing in, why they should be affected by what's going on in the wider market. So they, they might be able to get them and get it across the line. We just have to wait and see. Yes. I mean, the people I talked to told me uh, when I came back from holiday uh, started this week that uh, none of those IPOs were likely to get away in the end. But uh, as you say, if there is one that will, it will be the sustainable farming one. That's a US fund, of course, basically a US farmland fund. There have been attempts in the past to raise money for farmland funds, but they've never been particularly uh, successful. So it's a healthy sign, I guess, that we're getting uh, still another kind of trust coming to the market. We've had quite a few recently. But um, if we look back at the IPOs that were, happened last year, we had, I think we had nine last year, something like that. How are they doing? How are they performing? Are they, uh, have they been caught up in this uh, sell-off as well? They definitely have. If you look, the, the really big successes last year were the two digital infrastructure funds, Digital Nine and Cordian. They've been holding up very well, invested all of their money, raised more money, raised more money again. Last time I looked, they were down sort of 15, 16, 17%, I think, this week. So that's, the whole thing sort of cracked a bit. Again, I think these things will come back again. But it does come back to the yield that you're getting on these assets. And if you get a, a nice income from your bank deposit, which you can't do at the moment. I mean, theory rates are going up, but we haven't seen that float through to um, bank interest yet. But Maybe one day. Take some time, I suspect. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. But as soon as you can do that, then you question then, well, do I want to take an additional risk to get a yield of 3.5%, from something else? And it, it does make that calculation a bit more difficult. And um, that puts pressure downwards on the share price because people say, well, actually, no, I really want to, instead of 3.5%, I want to see 4.5%. And that means a quite a big drop in the share price. I mean, many of the alternative asset trusts have come to market over the last decade. They have all had target rates of return of between around, say, 6 and 9%, 6-10%, that sort of thing. So uh, if interest rates do stay at these kind of levels, and if they feed through, as you say, into cash as an alternative, they're not going to look quite so attractive as they uh, did in the past, unless they have inflation linkage and can improve their returns through uh, ability to recover inflation. So we haven't mentioned the infrastructure sector yet, apart from the renewables, but they've been hit as well. 
Do you think that's the kind of calculation that is going to uh, be around for a while? Yeah, it definitely is an issue. If you look at most of those infrastructure funds, they started off life investing in the UK kind of PFI, PPP type contracts. So those are the things that were funding new schools, new hospitals, new prisons, that sort of stuff. And those contracts were all constructed in a way that you got inflation-linked income, which was great because it was government-backed inflation-linked income. It was like buying an innocent guilt, but on a much higher yield. So that they, they looked incredibly good value. They have diversified quite a lot since. So, so most of them have got assets overseas now, and actually that's a slightly different equation. Although you've seen government bond yields go up in the US as well. It's not just the UK. But um, where you've got the inflation linkage, that does help. That does protect your interest there. I've been looking actually this week at Hickel Infrastructure, which is the first one that launched. And the really interesting thing I thought was that when it first got away, which is March 2006, by the time it got to the end of its first year, the discount rate that it was using to value its assets was about 7%. And at the time, the government bond yields were about sort of four and a bit. And then fast forward to the end of March 2020, when we had COVID panic and the government basically splashing money left, right and centre to try and drive yields down. And the government bond yield got down below half a percent. Hickel was still using a discount rate of about 7% to value its assets. So I think it's important to remember that even though these bond yields are going up, there isn't necessarily a linear relationship between the two. Basically, the difference between the government bond rate and the discount rate is a risk premium. So basically, you're saying you can have risk-free money with the government. I think we maybe question how risk-free the UK government is at the moment, but there we are. Um, but risk-free money with the government, how much more do I want to earn? Uh, what, what's my risk premium to earn this sort of asset? So what's the risk involved? And that involves things like how much debt's it got and how volatile the earnings is and that sort of stuff. And it's very interesting that the risk premiums have kind of moved around a lot more. They've kind of compensated for the, the moves in the discount in the underlying discount rate. So all of this stuff is more art than science, it feels like sometimes. A lot of it's really informed by what price these things are changing hand at um, between the, the different investors in the sector. So we talked to Bluefield this morning on the back of their results. They're saying that their solar farms are valued at 1.4 million pounds a megawatt. And that's based on a discount rate that they, they've worked out of 6.75%. But actually that 1.4 million, it just reflects roughly where things have been changing hands at in the, the secondary market for solar farms. So um, not so much about the, where the discount rates have been. So even though the discount rates gone up a bit, it's more reflecting of what's going on in the secondary market. So, um, yeah, this is a straightforward relationship. I think people have panicked a bit on the back of this giant big move, and it is an enormous move in bond yields, so that's maybe reasonable. But they have maybe panicked a bit. And then we are seeing some kind of more sensible level heads this morning, I think. Um, some of these share prices are recovering a bit this morning. So um, hopefully that will carry on through into next week. That was James Carthew of Quoted Data. In fact, our conversation went on for another 15 minutes after that extract you've just heard, uh, in which we talked about the uh, Equity Investment Trust's results this week, including the likes of Merchants Trust, the UK Equity Income Trust, which had some uh, relatively good results uh, for the six months to the 31st of July. Uh, we also covered uh, North American Income Trust, ticker NAIT, Pacific Asset Trusts, PAC, uh, and JP Morgan Emerging Markets, uh, one of the uh, more popular emerging market investment trusts, which uh, had a relatively poor performance over the six months, the 30th of June. And finally, we talked about Schroeder UK Public Private Trust, the former Woodford Patient Capital, ticker SUPP, whose uh, travails continue and whose interim results were uh, unfortunately, way down, a 31.8% decline in its NAV. If you want to listen to uh, James Carthew's comments on those trusts and uh, uh, his other observations on the markets, then uh, you'll find them behind the paywall in the Moneymakers Circle on the website. Uh, that is uh, not enough room to cover everything this week uh, with our three speakers. So uh, we decided to put part of that uh, into the Moneymakers Circle website. 
given what's happened in the last week to the share prices of infrastructure and renewable energy trusts, I naturally turned back to Colette Ord, the analyst of infrastructure and renewable energy trusts uh, at Numis Securities. We had a very interesting conversation a few weeks back on the podcast. So, Colette, I was away last week, although I did obviously pick up the fallout from the so-called uh, maxi budget delivered on Friday last week. And it's had quite a dramatic effect on the sectors you cover, has it not? Perhaps you could just fill us in on what has happened so far since then. Yeah, sure. I mean, the budget obviously caused quite a bit of turbulence in the listed markets, particularly in the infrastructure names. And really, the rising bond yields that followed the detail of the growth plan are really what has led the share price in the infrastructure sector to weaken. And that's really just as the market is trying to figure out what rising bond yields might mean potentially for discount rates, which are a key input to the valuation and therefore the net performance of these funds. And with rising bond yields, the fear is that the discount rates will also rise to a similar degree. Um, And that led to quite a lot of share price weakness. Uh, we've seen some recovery today, thankfully, but but generally speaking, most funds are still down on average about sort of six to eight percent, depending on the subsector. So core infrastructure funds down just under eight percent, renewables down in the UK just a little under nine percent. The European names doing slightly better, but still down seven percent. This is since Friday. Uh, storage funds, they're down 6%. There's actually one particular outlier that is, uh, you know, seen their price completely stable through all of that. And that's the Gresham House Energy Storage Fund grid. And similarly, the efficiency funds have fallen on average 7% since Friday. So there's been quite a lot of turbulence as the market tries to understand what rising gilt yields, particularly in the UK, because it is the UK bond yields that we've seen move to the greater degree uh, and what that might mean for discount rates and therefore NAV valuations. I mean, what was interesting was that a number of the elements of the maxi budget, or whatever you like to call it, the growth plan as well, were actually uh, beneficial to the sector compared to what was being planned otherwise in terms of corporation tax being reduced and so on. But it, obviously, it's a discount rate factor that has, has dominated uh, people's concern. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And we have some concerns about focusing on a single data point in that respect. And one of the things that the funds have been pretty good at over time is providing sensitivities to their valuation. And helpfully, particularly, we had some new news from Bluefield Solar Income Fund this morning. We've had a a number of funds provide us with combined sensitivity analysis, which shows us that actually, if discount rates are rising, there are other macro factors actually in the market, which are likely to mitigate the overall impact on the NAV for a lot of these funds. And so you mentioned the macro changes in the budget. We saw tax changes and that that obviously is a positive for infrastructure. So any rise in discount rates, if indeed we see them, and we, we do expect discount rates to rise to a certain degree, will be mitigated by the positive impact of things like tax, but also inflation generally running ahead of most models. So we would see that as a positive driver of NAV. For renewables, of course, we have the positive factor that power prices remain elevated and funds have been able to sell power at elevated levels to to differing degrees and their hedging strategy has helped here. So the potential impact on any change in discount rates is is there are several mitigations in each of the subsectors that we follow that I think perhaps the market didn't take into account. It just assumed that the discount rates would move on their own without being offset by these other factors. And the fact that it's a fairly uniform response across the sector would, would tend to suggest that that was a, a somewhat undifferentiated uh, response, if you like. It was just a, a single factor causing that concern. So if I put that to you then, uh, do you think, I mean, you've, you've sort of implied it, but you think that the decline is uh, what possibly overstated? Yes, I do, because whether you're looking at the core infrastructure funds, which have RPI-linked cash flows, you know, high levels of protection, whether it's HICL or MPP at 80 and 70% or so protected from inflation, also rising interest rates for core funds. There are cash 
elements within the SPVs of these funds which will benefit from a higher interest rate. There is no refinancing risk. For instance, in core funds, they typically have long dated fixed rate financing and that amortizes down over the life of the projects or in regulated assets, regulated returns periodically adjust for the cost of finance. So again, we think things like the core sector, you know, there are those positive inflation factors alone which would see NAVs continue to look stable. And, and in fact, we have in our estimates still an assumption of, of modest NAV growth. And that would also allow for even changes in discount rates. We would still expect NAVs to grow, albeit maybe modestly. And similarly for renewables, we have an assumption that power prices and PPAs where they've been struck, for instance, we've seen from Bluefield this morning talk about their PPA strategy, giving them visibility of dividend cover just shy of two times in June 2023-2024. So again, very strong levels of cash flow. And they, as I say, provided a really helpful combined sensitivity if interest rates changed and that impacted the cost of their debt that was not fixed already. That would have a very modest impact of minus 0.4 pence on NAV. The inflation impact in the short term in 2023-24 would have a positive impact on their NAV. Tax has a positive impact on their NAV, reflecting the changes. And that would all be quite significant to offset further discount rate moves from here. They've already adjusted their discount rate by 70 basis points, they clarified this morning. So there's lots of moving parts to consider, but we think that the sector has mitigating features to the impact of discount rate changes on NAV. And therefore, we think the share prices have largely overdone that. And particularly when we consider the quality of the income and the yields, the income growth and visibility that both sort of core and renewable sectors in particular can offer in this environment, um, you can get yields of five to six and a bit percent, which, you know, relative to gilt yields, either index links or nominal is pretty attractive. Yes, I was going to make that uh, point or at least ask that question. Changing discount rate doesn't uh, affect the ability of these trusts to go on paying their dividends in the short term or for those dividends to be well covered in many cases. Uh, that's really the point. Those dividends, I'm joking, in fact, they've obviously become more attractive in relative terms compared to where they were before, though obviously not necessarily compared to gilts, which is, I guess, the uh, the other comparator we should use. One of the other points that came out, I think, of the, of the maximum it was a reference to uh, unlocking the power of wind in the statement about the growth plan. Uh, what do you think that means? Is that actually positive for the wind generators or not? What is it? Do we know what it means? Well, it, it effectively means that the planning system, which has effectively ceased the delivery of new projects onshore wind in the UK, is going to be loosened such that new onshore wind can be delivered. So I think it is positive. It brings more opportunities for the listed funds if indeed those projects were to offer the returns that they need in line with their targets for investors. So it brings an additional opportunity set. Um, but I think generally speaking, we've seen a, a lot of the funds, certainly the larger funds focusing on offshore wind, uh, maybe some of the smaller funds Bluefield recently added some onshore wind in the UK. So, yeah, we would see it as a positive. It, it's an additional opportunity set, potentially, if the pricing is right. I should just mention this week, we've actually had some results from renewable investment trusts and uh, without sort of going through them all. But I mean, Bluefield Solar, you mentioned, were out uh, this morning. Their NAV was up 28.2% in total return terms. Similarly, we had Octopus Renewables Infrastructure Trust, uh, ORIT. They were up uh, 11.3% NAV total return. Gresham House Energy Storage uh, Grid, you mentioned that one, the outlier. Their NAV was up by 27.2% total return in six months to the 30th of June. And then finally, we had Aquila European Renewables Income Fund, which I guess is slightly different, AERS. That was up 5.3% NAV total return. So these have been having some very good returns this year, as we know, uh, helped by uh, positive power prices and so on. But it would it be fair to say, notwithstanding that, and notwithstanding what you've said about the discount rates, that things won't be quite as good as this uh, in future periods, given that uh, oil prices, gas prices are coming down or appear to be coming down. Would that be fair to say, are we, if they've had such a good run? I mean, really, the, the benefit of the high power price environment on cash flows will come through in the next couple of years in most cases. So if indeed the hedging strategy has allowed the companies to lock into 
those. And that's where it will differ for different funds. It will very much depend on their hedging strategy and, and the percentage that they are exposed to current power prices. So, of course, power prices coming back down to more normal levels will lead to more normal levels of return. But you've just pointed out the sector really was predicated off target returns of between 6 and 8%. And the funds are delivering sizable returns, not just power prices, but of course, inflation and also operational strength and generation being ahead as well in, in parts of the market. So, would we expect an ongoing performance of double-digit returns? No, it's not what the sector is there to deliver. Um, investors buy it for income, typically, um, and the target returns are single-digit total returns, typically, um, that you would expect to get from these kind of assets. But we think that the returns, notwithstanding the sort of rising guilt rates, still, still look attractive where they to normalize because the visibility that you can get from some of these cash flows on income and income growth to us is still pretty strong. Now, you mentioned the average change in uh, share price terms of uh, these uh, various sectors that you cover. Within that, though, how much differentiation was there? And what were the kind of factors that have, have led to differentials in the share price performance of, say, let's take the renewable energy trust. Is it related to the kind of power they're producing or how they're generating it? Or is it to do with their uh, existing discount rates or whatever? What's been uh, going on there? Well, initially, it was fairly arbitrary. They all fell of a pretty similar magnitude. But the, the solar funds were initially perhaps harder to hit because they have a lower discount rate than some of the mixed technology funds. Wind typically carries a higher discount rate than solar because of the uh, greater variability of the energy resource. But pretty consistently, the numbers were down across the board. So the market wasn't seemingly looking to the portfolios or to things like the capital structure. Uh, a lot of these funds have long-term debt in place with limited exposure to refinancing risk or rising rates. So I think initially the market was just really trying to understand was there stress in any balance sheets? What is the new premium over gilts that we should expect? And going back to history in 2006-07, when actually a number of the core funds at least existed, we have some markers in history where we can see that when risk-free rates were sort of 4.7% in 2007 and, and interest rates were 5 and 3.25% in the UK, discount rates in the core sector were sort of between 7 and 8%. And the premium over gilts at that time, the accepted premium for those assets or cash flows was between 2 and 250 basis points. So what we've seen in the recent moves is... Um, gets closer to that historic headroom level, having reached as high as 600 basis points. But I think looking back at history, which gives us an idea of just how these discount rates have transacted over time, how, how far they've moved. And there's you know, a big difference between sectors. Core infrastructure funds have not seen very significant discount rate compression compared to other parts of the market. So we think there's lots of interesting data points to look at. And we're doing quite a lot of work around relevant risk premiums and headroom over relevant gilts. And you know, whichever way we look at it, we can see that the current valuations, even with some discount rate increases factored in, still look pretty good value to us. So finally, then, we look forward to seeing how that pans out. Last time we spoke, we did mention the possibility of changes in the regime by which uh, renewable energy trusts were uh, operating. And there has been obviously talk about this uh, possibility of a deal, if you like, with government, whereby in return for uh, uh, accepting lower prices in the near term, they might get longer term contracts where they fix price and so on. Are we any clearer about what that's going to mean? Or is it off the table now? What's going on there? Well, we're no clearer is the answer. I mean, there is an ongoing sort of consultation with the wider industry, the REMA consultation, which concludes on the 10th of October. Now, as GRID put it in their own results, that consultation is not a knee-jerk reaction to the cost of living crisis, the cost of energy crisis that we've seen recently, but it is designed to make sure that the energy markets in the UK are fit for purpose beyond 2030 once we reach the targets that we're all striving to get to on our net zero journey. And I think, you know, if the outcome of that is that the government and the parties involved in generating 
reach an agreement on an appropriate price that they can sell their power at, reducing volatility and replacing it with visibility, then we would see that as a positive for the sector. One of the key differences between renewables compared to other infrastructure spaces like core, where you have a much greater level of visibility and therefore predictability of your income. So if we were to get that sort of offering through the renewables, then we would see that as a positive. The key question, of course, is what is an acceptable price? And unfortunately, I don't have the answer to that. And I'm sure it will differ for each company because, of course, companies have been investing in the sector since 2013 and they have done so based off their estimates at the time. And clearly since that period, we've had high levels of volatility in power prices. So it's going to be interesting to see how the sector and the government evolve that discussion. That was uh, Colette Ord, the Infrastructure and Renewable Energy Analyst at Numis Securities. Uh, Moving on from that, it's a good point at which to speak to one of her colleagues, Justin Bell, who is a property specialist at the same firm and who's been following the developments in the commercial property sector of the Investment Trust universe. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Justin. It has been uh, quite a week for commercial property trusts in general, in part because of the fallout from the maxi budget last week, and in part also because we've been living through a period of quite the strongly rising interest rates, as we all know, and bond yields. What's your take on, on what's been happening this week in particular, where we've seen some very sharp moves in the share prices of property trusts? And can you put that in some kind of context over what's happened this year? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite a week, as you mentioned. I mean, it's been quite a year, in fact, in the in the REIT market. And um, it sort of feels like the last week has condensed all of the pain we've had in the first half of the year um, all over again. So, um, I mean, for some context, the REIT market actually had a bit of a rally today, but it's still down about 15% on the week. Uh, it was down as much as 20% uh, earlier this week. And we're down around 35 to 40% year to date. And obviously, the average is masks and some even greater pain for, for some stocks in particular. It is all very macro driven at the moment so it's as you mentioned the the maxi budget fueling fears of further inflation and associated rate rises meaning that investors are having to currently try and grapple with what this means for cap rates which will feed through to valuations and NAVs of the REITs. Indeed so can you isolate a little bit more of the impact that uh, rising yields do have on the performance of property investment trusts I mean it's it's partly about the cost of debt obviously all Commercial property trusts, or nearly all, are geared to some extent and have debt obligations. Uh, but it's more about the uh, the discount rate, presumably at the rate at which uh, future cash flows are discounted. Are those the two main effects, or is it uh, there's also a sentiment factor in there probably as well? There's sort of one more effect also, which is um, the effect it has on competing sources of capital. So, as you mentioned, the debt market becomes more expensive. Property is a leveraged asset class, and that leads to debt being either less accretive or, or not accretive at all for investment returns. It also has an impact on the investment market side to the discount rate or cap rate of the valuations, as previously mentioned. And this is the slight unknown. The listed market has to price this much faster than the direct market, which is still very much in a period of price discovery. And the summer was fairly closed to, to transactions and starting to see deals come back to market at wider valuations. But uh, until the valuers get some uh, evidence of where deals are pricing, that discount rate will still be a bit up in the air. Uh, the final effect that uh, the rising rate has is multi-asset funds and generalists who don't have to invest in real estate. Uh, most of them hold real estate for income. Suddenly, where previously yields were, were non-existent, they can get pretty attractive yields from uh, government bonds, from corporate bonds, which have, have risen, and also other kind of maybe sectors which have fallen even further in, in the equity world. So it, the headwinds for the REIT market make it uh, considerably less attractive for a generalist investor. And that, that flow of capital has led to a widening of the discount in the sector. So there was nothing specific in the maxi budget or in the growth plan that uh, directly affects uh, property investment trust, but it is these other effects, the wider impact of the market, what's been happening in the market and uh, to interest rates and so on. Uh, that has been the main effect. Uh, can you help us by t- explaining you know, which property trusts have been worse hit and why that would be. Obviously, uh, I'm thinking here of industrial sector, of warehouses, those kind of things. So they've been particularly badly hit. But uh, what's been the kind of experience uh, across the sector uh, in the last couple of weeks and then looking back over the year as a whole? Yeah, I mean, there have been sort of few hiding places, unfortunately, in the sector. But 
those that have been worst affected are the companies that started on the lowest cap rate. So, you know, the industrial sector, as you mentioned, particularly the, the big box space, so that's Tritax and Seagro, you know, valued off three to four percent net initial yields. You know, that starts to look very vulnerable when yields have risen to above that level. So the lower the starting yield, the, the greater the fall, I think is, is a trend this year. And also, I think that the bigger the company, the bigger the fall as well. I think people selling what, what is the most liquid stocks that they can with, to, to meet outflows or to meet reallocations. And it, you know, that leads to, to the largest stocks in the index being the worst affected as well. And you obviously have been talking to uh, your clients of the firm. What message are you getting back from them? I mean, does anybody out there think that uh, this effect has been overdone? Or indeed, do you think that this effect has been overdone, the combination of uh, the factors you mentioned? I think my view and the view, which I think is fairly consensus amongst people that I've spoken to in the market, is that the REIT market is oversold. However, there is such clear headwinds and valuations set to fall that the catalyst for there to be a re-rating is, is very slim or hard to see at the moment. So people are, are continuing to generally stay away from the sector and wait for macro environment to improve. That's both those looking on a global basis, you know, the UK's kind of not doing itself a lot of favours at the moment in the, the eyes of the world. So, you know, people are staying clear. Obviously, there's lots of other areas of the world that have got issues as well, but that's definitely keeping capital away. And as I mentioned earlier, the generalist investor and, and even some of the retail investors are, are thinking they'll be better off buying opportunities ahead. So, you know, no one's in a rush to pile in at the moment, unfortunately. We are also seeing um, hedge funds playing in the space. So, announced this week, Citadel took a short position in, in Tritax Big Box, for instance. Um, so, you know, there's some people playing the, the, the macro trends uh, on both sides of the equation, which is having an impact. I mean, as you said, I mean, a 15% decline in a very short period of time uh, is quite dramatic. I mean, does this in, imply that uh, investors are being a little bit complacent before uh, to explain the extent of the move? Or is it just the fact that uh, guilt yields and so on have moved so sharply this week uh, that's behind this? How would you allocate the scorecard, if you like, as far as... Uh, investor sentiment towards the sector's concerns? I think investor sentiment was, was starting from a very weak place. As I say, you know, the sector was already down 20-25% on the year. I think you can rationalise the moves by the, the moves we've seen in the gilt market, which is obviously an even greater volatility. So, you know, the, the moves are not totally irrational. And that said, you know, when you start from a position of weak sentiment and you get further bad news, you do get an element of capitulation. And I think that's what we were seeing after five days in a row between Thursday and Wednesday. Of the market being down around four or five percent in the in the sector, you know that leads to a serious falling knife situation and and people being very wary about stepping in to try and catch it. So, I think I think we did see that capitulation on Wednesday and hence a bit of relief uh, in the last couple of days. What has this done to uh, dividends? I mean, obviously the, this has no immediate impact on the ability of commercial property trusts to pay dividends, and those dividends, by definition, at least superficially, look more attractive now because they've uh, higher dividend yields on offer. Obviously, we went through the pandemic, which is a very serious issue for the commercial property sector. A lot of dividends were cut. I think only one investment trust didn't cut its dividend during that period. What do you think is likely pattern from here if this uh, trend continues? Are we going to see uh, dividend cuts, uh, do you think, across the sector at some stage in the future if we move into a recession, for example? I think it's a possibility. Um, I think it'll be on a case-by-case and sector-by-sector basis. So I think there's two competing factors affecting dividends. One being um, to the negative, obviously, the debt market has become more expensive and most property investment companies are sort of modelled and set up to run at you know, around 25 to 35% leverage You know, with that carry trade of having cheap debt and buying high yielding properties in the past few years has worked quite nicely to boost dividends. Now, most of them are in a position where the debt cost is probably the same as the property yield or, or in some cases, maybe even, even greater. And that means that debt is no longer accretive to earnings. So that as refinancing start to come through, that could affect some companies' dividend cover. I think for, for the listed market, most of them are in a pretty comfortable place with leverage and refinancing. Most of them are fixed debt for the next few years, at least. So it shouldn't be too much of an impact. But no, the other impact, which should be good for a number of companies, is the occupational market it is, in fact, very strong in most cases. So you know, the tailwinds that have helped the, the sort of so-called bed sheds and med sector—that's you know, the industrial sector, residential care homes, GP surgeries, the demographic and consumer trends will and are continuing to allow companies to drive rents in those sectors. So that should feed through to 
potential dividend growth in, in many cases as well. So I think the industrial sector particularly is still categorized by, by very low vacancy, but, you know, increasing occupier demand due to aspects such as reshoring, nearshoring, and e-commerce is still on the rise. So many of those companies are reporting 5-10% rental growth, which will go some way to offset the investment market, which you know, might be repricing their, their valuations, but will not have a direct impact on dividends and cash flows. So, I mean, in the general kind of commercial property sector, we've got indicative yields, of, well, certainly in the region, in many cases of, you know, five and a half, six percent, uh, even a little bit more. That is obviously not so quite as attractive as it was compared to uh, yields uh, above four percent. But how does that compare to the kind of yields that we would have had uh, in more recent years in terms of the overall absolute level? Well, it is much higher as a result of the, the repricing. So, you know, what these funds were generally trading on kind of four to five percent dividend yields um, at the start of the year, the generalist REITs, and um, you know now that you can often get get six percent, and you know that is obviously rationalised by the rise in gilts, but many of them have quite a high exposure to the industrial sector, and I think when the dust settles and people you know regain a little bit of risk appetite, investors will start to want to to get some rental growth or income growth. And the property sector should be able to deliver that in, in many cases, you know, where obviously you can quote nominal guilt yields, but a nominal guilt yield is, is nominal. And particularly if inflation runs slightly higher, people investors will want to find ways to protect their real wealth. And I think if you've got property in sectors where supply is tight and demand is high and growing, that should lead to at or above inflationary levels of rental growth, which I think will start to look attractive once, once a little bit of risk appetite returns. Okay, so finally, I want to pick up just on a couple of trusts that reported this week. Obviously, with commercial property trusts, we often know the NAV position uh, before the results come out. But we've heard from, uh, for example, UK Commercial Property, uh, one of the bigger general commercial property trusts, UKCM is the ticker there. They had some interim results, 30th of June, NAV total return up about 12%. But the discount is now out to somewhere, I don't know how what number you have it on, but it's somewhere about 50% or 45 50%, something like that. And then there's uh, in a, a different sector, PRS REIT, that's a relative newcomer, ticker PRSR, which is uh, in the business of building property to rent rather than to own. And that one reported a NAV or EPRA NTA, I should say, saying it should be up uh, 11% from its level at the end of December last year and 17% from a year ago. So tell us about those two. Uh, give us your flavour of... Uh, how you interpret those two very different uh, animals, of course. So UKCM, as you, as you mentioned, had a very strong H1. Their portfolio is, is over 60% industrial and quite kind of prime industrial assets. So, you know, this was an area of the market that continued to benefit from the first half. I think, as you mentioned as well, we do, obviously the results are out this week, but, you know, the valuations have been known for a while. And to be honest, that you know, a June valuation now is, is looking pretty stale in the market. So, you know, the as ever, the market's trying to look forwards. And you know, here we are today at the end of the September quarter. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to valuations then and probably more likely looking forward another quarter when we get more pricing evidence. Yeah, I think from UKCM's results today, they do note in their outlook that they expect to give back some of the first half gains, at least in valuation terms, um, and also have a pretty cautious outlook for the next 12 to 18 months. So they're cautious on the macro environment and uh, you know, as a result, they're running a pretty low level of gearing, which will put them in, in good stead to ride the storm. They've got about 13% uh, LTV currently, which you know has potentially been a criticism for the last few years of them being undergeared in the rising market. But you know, should serve them in good stead to uh, have some available firepower to pick up some attractively priced assets potentially if there are some, you know, if it's a buyer's market. The other stock you as you mentioned, uh, PRS REIT, as you say, very strong rental growth there. Uh, lots of talk in the press over the last few months about rising mortgage rates and how it's getting harder to get on the housing ladder. And as a result, uh, more people are saying rental property, and that's leading to a shortage of rental property and higher rents and rates there. So you know, good for a PRS landlord. I, I think that backdrop should continue. And I think you're seeing a lot of private equity money still looking at PRS as a sector and build to rent. So I think you know it's still seen as an attractive area, very defensive you will always rent those properties out you know, if they're good quality in new builds. But I think, however, there is some risk. You know, they won't be immune from uh, the housing market if, you know, if there is an issue with rising mortgage costs and, and there is a bit of a correction there. Um, you know, at least in valuation terms, you would expect them to not be immune 
but from a cash flow perspective, it looks pretty rosy. Five ten percent rental growth they're, they're reporting, and um, you know should continue for the foreseeable. I guess with the caveat being, it's a slightly sensitive sector. You have to to manage um, driving rents with not displacing people and ending up in the Daily Mail. A fate worse than death, indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So finally, I was going to ask you about: Do you think there'll be any more consolidation in the sector? We saw that very interesting, and well-timed move, I would guess, by the merger between. Uh, uh, LXI and Secure Income REIT, well, it's uh, timely on the behalf of the uh, of the latter, at least. Do you think we'll see more consolidation like that, or was that a, just a one-off? I think lots of people would like to see it. I think both, you know, shareholders, brokers, investors, probably not management teams as much. But I think you know the LXI Secure Income REIT deal was was pretty unique. It was a fantastic deal for I think all parties, and as you say, very well timed to to get that one out of the way albeit they've been somewhat unlucky in the past week, having the rug pulled out from under their deal to buy a portfolio of, of Sainsbury's supermarkets. But very good combination of management teams between LXI and, and Secure Income REIT. Um, created a bit of a, a goliath in the sector, a sort of two, two and a half billion pound company with good good liquidity, which is going to be hard to match for their rivals. But elsewhere in the sector, I think we're less likely to see mergers as takeouts. I think given the, the discount that REITs have blown out to, I think private equity will be taking a look. You know, currently that market is slightly difficult for them. You know, for the opportunistic funds, uh, given the debt market's fairly closed, so maybe harder for them to um, to get their returns unless we start to see even greater levels of distress. That said, we have seen a number of REITs across Europe taken off the listed markets in the last three or four years, UK market included. But I think mergers. I mean, never say never, but just get, getting a little bit more difficult. With, you know, competing boards, competing management teams shareholders you know it's it's tricky so that brings us to the end of this week's podcast and uh, what has been as i said at the beginning a rather tumultuous week which has seen uh, gilt yields rise strongly in the uk it's seen big sell-offs in the equity market and uh, particular trouble for the commercial property and infrastructure stroke renewable energy sectors of the investment trust universe We'll be back next week with uh, the latest news and insights into what's been going on in the investment trust world. Uh, More information, as always, at the Moneymakers website, money-makers.co. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.